Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Scripture says that we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The spiritual life is a life that is produced, and the growth is produced and energized by two factors, God the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. We are to desire the sincere milk of the Word that we may grow thereby. It is through the study of God's Word, uh, learning it, believing it, making it part of our thinking and letting it characterize every aspect of our life that we grow and that growth is made possible by the ministry, the sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit. When we sin, that sanctifying ministry is grieved and quenched, the Scripture says. It's shut down. It's not that the Holy Spirit doesn't still operate in other areas, but he is no longer producing growth because we're no longer walking by means of the Spirit, we're walking by means of the flesh. God has given us a, a procedure, a promise for recovery, and that is 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we always begin our time of study of God's Word with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're in fellowship, to give everyone the opportunity to uh, confess any sins that uh, they need to in privacy, their priesthood, and silent prayer to the Lord, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Father, your abundant grace has provided us everything we need for life and godliness. You have given us your word, that by the study of your word we may come to understand who you are and who we are. We can come to understand how we may have a relationship with you, how we may have eternal life, and how we may grow and mature in that new spiritual life. We come together now as a body of believers to submit ourselves to the teaching of your word. God, the Holy Spirit, would use this in each of our lives to challenge us, to make us aware of the fact that there are elements in our thinking that is, 
dependent upon our own self-sufficiency and not the sufficiency of your word or your grace or the work of Christ on the cross. Father, we come in humility to submit ourselves to the teaching of your word, recognizing that we grow only by the implementation of your word in our lives under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we pray that we might be able to focus, to concentrate, to study this morning, that our focus will be on you and not on the things that will take place this afternoon or tomorrow, but upon your your message for us today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We live in a world that has been dominated since at least the time of the Enlightenment with a naturalistic worldview, that is a worldview that excludes the supernatural. And we more and more as we live in a secularized society, we are surrounded by people who do not think that there is anything more out there, outside of the few wackos who think there's a UFO here or there, somebody from Mars has shown up, but they don't believe there's anything out there beyond what we can see, what we experience. Uh, there's nothing in terms of a god or angels or spirits or anything of that nature. On the other hand, you always find that there are some people who go way too far in that degree, and they overemphasize everything that has to do with angels or spirits or demons, and they virtually get involved in pagan concepts of spiritism or demonism. The Bible, though, gives us a clear understanding of the fact that there is another order of beings in the universe that were created by God in eternity past, and they're called angels. And these angels are immaterial beings, and that at some time in eternity past, there was a revolt among these angels, led by the highest of the angels, the most intelligent, the most beautiful of all the angels, a special order of angels. In fact, he was a cherub, and he is called in the English translation of Isaiah 14, uh, he was called Lucifer, and the uh, Hebrews called Hillel ben Shahar. And this angel led a revolt against God. And the reality of that revolt is a vital part of every one of our lives, for there is an intersection, the Bible says, between this immaterial, invisible conflict in the heavenlies and our day-to-day lives. We call this the angelic conflict. It's been called the invisible war. It's been talked about often under the concept of spiritual warfare. And yet it is a very vital part of every one of our spiritual life because if we don't take into account this dimension, we're often unaware of what is actually going on in Scripture. Now, we've looked at the assaults of Satan on the human race in terms of the uh, direct category. He has direct assaults. We've traced that through uh, history. And now we are in the area of indirect assaults, how Satan and the demons seek to influence individual Christians, seek to influence human history for his ultimate agenda, which is to try to disprove God, uh, God's ability to govern in human history and to prove that he can do it better or at least as well as God. We are told in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're in the midst of this conflict. Uh, there is much there that we'll eventually get into in this sub-series. But on, in Ephesians 6:11, we're told to put on the full armor of God. This is the ultimate defense against the devil. 
and we will get into that eventually. Right now we're studying the categories of these indirect assaults. But in this verse where it tells us to put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And that word for schemes is the Greek methodeia. And this has the idea of wiles or tricks or schemes. It indicates that Satan has particularly well thought out schemes and strategies in order to distract believers from living the uh, spiritual life, from pursuing spiritual maturity. He has strategies for blinding the minds of unbelievers to the truth of the gospel, and he has strategies in mind to try to derail God's plan for history. One of his uh, strategies is to try to destroy the nation Israel, in this era after the cross where he was ultimately defeated, his only chance to try to pull out any kind of victory is to destroy Israel so that God cannot fulfill those promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament. If he's successful at that, then he thinks that he has won. We have seen that in his part of his strategy is to influence man in the way that he thinks. And he does this a number of different ways. And uh, James chapter 3, verse 15, gives us some insight into this, talking about human viewpoint thinking, what we call human viewpoint thinking, sometimes the pagan thinking, but it is the wisdom of the world. Wisdom of the world can manifest itself in numerous different ways, different philosophies, different religions, there's all manner of different ways in which Satan's fundamental thought is manifested in human history. And this is all captured by James under the word wisdom. This wisdom, that is the human viewpoint wisdom that he has been talking about in context, the wisdom that is, seems right to man, the uh, writer of Proverbs says, but the end thereof is death. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above. So here he's juxtaposing uh, human viewpoint wisdom with divine viewpoint wisdom. There are only two basic ways that, that you can think about life. You can either think about life God's way or you can think about life the devil's way. The devil's way may include many different manifestations, but it all boils down to the same basic, basic principles. And this is defined in the context of James 3.15 as earthly, natural. It's, that means it's soulish. It's not related to those who are born again, who are uh, spiritually reborn. 1 Corinthians chapter 2.14, the natural man, the soulish man, same word there in the Greek, sukikos. The soulish man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. So it shows that fundamentally, uh, besides a spiritual death issue, that part of that is that there is a basic knowledge issue that the uh, how, that the unbeliever, no matter how much lowercase truth he can uh, understand through empiricism, through rationalism, he cannot get true truth because true truth only comes from revelation. It is only the revelation of God that gives that enveloping truth on which all of the knowledge is based, and that this. Human viewpoint wisdom is not only soulish, it is demonic. So we summarize this under four points the last couple of weeks, that first of all, all human wisdom is equated with demonic thinking. It's demonic thinking because it, the second point, it glorifies the creature over the creator. 
It locates ultimate truth in the creation and not in the revelation of the creator. Third point we saw was that the essence of this thinking involves two concepts. The first is autonomy, that is independence from God. The creature thinks that somehow he can make life work apart from what God said. He doesn't really have to think the way God says he has to think. He, really, he doesn't have to really respond to the pressures of life the way God says to because somehow he can find some way to achieve stability, tranquility, a measure of happiness without being totally dependent upon God's word. The second aspect is antagonism. This often breeds a hostility to God, an antagonism to him, because as the creature strives to make life work on his own, and he ultimately cannot because he's living in God's world and not the world of his own, uh, his own imagination, he becomes frustrated, resentful, and angry toward God. So these two elements characterize Satan's thinking, and they ultimately characterize every a human viewpoint system of thinking one or the other, if not both. And so we say that these, in point four, that these two attributes lie at the root of all human thought systems not based on the word of God. And all human thought systems ultimately lead to a path of self-destruction for the creature. That's why Solomon wrote in the Proverbs twice, just to make sure we didn't miss it the first time, and I find that there are very few things that are repeated verbatim in the Scripture, so when they are, we ought to pay attention to them. And in the, in the Proverbs, Solomon says there is a way that seems right to man. It feels good. It, 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 it fits our comfort zone. Uh, it fits with the uh, opinions of those around us. Uh, there's a way that seems right to man, but the end is death. It is ultimately self-destructive. That's not eternal death necessarily because the believer operating on human viewpoint, as James writes, can end up in a temporal or carnal death. Now, we are to be on guard against Satan, according to 1 Peter 5.8. We're to be of sober spirit. The idea of sober spirit here is not the idea of not having uh, had any alcoholic beverages. It's the idea of thinking objectively, thinking on, an, on the basis of a rational, external system of eternal absolutes. It's being able to honestly and objectively evaluating not only yourself but your circumstances because you know what's really going on in human history because you have the word of an omniscient, omnipotent God to base it on. It's not guesswork. It's not your opinion. It's not my opinion. I don't say these things because I know so much. I say these things because an omniscient God has revealed these things to me, and therefore we can trust his word. And so we are to be of a sober spirit. We are to be alert. Our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. The image of a roaring lion is that of aggression and that of something that seeks to destroy us no matter uh, who we are. And this is exemplified in an Old Testament situation. Now, as we look at these various ways in which Satan attacks us, uh, we come to this category of Influence. How does Satan influence 
human history? How does Satan attempt to influence believers? What are some examples that we can go to in the Bible that show different ways in which Satan seeks to influence people? Well, the first one that happens, I believe, chronologically in history that we can go to other than the fall, once we get into the post-fall environment, is found in the book of Job. So let's turn in our Bibles to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Job is a fascinating book because of a number of reasons, but it is a book that deals with the issue of unjust or undeserved suffering. It's located, in terms of when it was written, it's located very early in history. Job lived to be a little over 200 years of age, which fits chronologically with the uh, age range of those in Abraham's lifetime. Abraham and Isaac, that generation, lived approximately 160 to 200 years of age, so we would locate Job very early about the time of Abraham, maybe a little before, maybe a little after. Uh, we can't say for sure, but it's definitely uh, six or 700 years before Moses penned the Pentateuch. And Job was written, many scholars believe, first of all the books in the Old Testament. And there are some who believe that it was written first because it provides sort of a prolegomena, an introduction to understand the nature of human history. And that is what we see in the first two chapters as the curtain is drawn back on what happens in the throne room of God, what happens behind the scenes that is beyond our senses. We cannot see demons. We cannot see angels. We cannot uh, experience them directly. We don't see into the throne of God. But yet God has revealed this to us that we might have an understanding of what goes on behind the scenes. The issue in Job is an issue that is close to every single human being that has ever lived. Why do we go through undeserved suffering? Why do we go through difficulty, hardship? Why does it seem that as we go through periods of our life, everything seems to go well, and then we go through other periods of our life where no matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, everything seems to go wrong, go bad. Life just seems terribly overwhelming and terribly difficult. It is very easy in the midst of those situations for us to turn our attention inward on our own problems, our own difficulties, and to get them off of God. We tend to ask questions like, why me? Why is God doing this to me? There's not one of us here that hasn't hit points in life where we haven't uh, done this, and Job is addressing that to give us a framework to understand how Satan seeks to influence us and how, as a believer, we should respond. And Job is portrayed for us as an outstanding believer. Now, many of us go through difficulties, and we're, we would never classify ourselves as an outstanding believer like Job. If we look at God's assessment of Job, in verse 8, we see that it is very high indeed. The Lord is the one who brings Job to Satan's attention. Not Satan doesn't come up and say, well, there's this guy down here. I want to uh, test him a little bit. 
God is the one who uh, brings Job to Satan's attention, which tells us something about this kind of testing, that this is to demonstrate something. And any time we are tested, it has some evidentiary bearing within the total uh, panorama of the angelic conflict. And the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on all the earth. He's blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now, there are four times in Job 1 and 2 that God gives this assessment of Job. And the reason he repeats it so much is so that we we capture this, because after we go through Job's uh, testing and we see all the ways in which he he loses many different things, all the, all the different adversity that he goes through. He's sitting outside the city. He is uh, tempted to give in to self-pity. He's just out there. He's now been uh, affected by these uh, physical maladies, these uh, skin cancers or skin sores. He's just out there scraping at them and uh, just physically in torment. And his three friends come up. Now, we often, and it's easy to sort of make fun of these three friends, but these three friends represent the kind of thinking that most everyone brings to the issue of suffering and the issue of undeserved suffering. And they all want to somehow put the blame on Job. You did something. You did something. God is getting you because there is some sin in your life. There is something you did or something you failed to do, and God is a just God, and he wouldn't let bad things happen to you unless you had done something uh, particularly heinous. So they, they all take a position against Job, but God tells us up front that this has nothing to do with Job's Behavior. It's not a result of any bad decisions that he's made. It's not a result of any sin in his life. He is blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. What Job shows us is that the answers that are often brought to the profound questions of life are superficial, incorrect, and incomplete. That is because they're not based on what the Word of God Teaches. So we come to this particular verse and we see that in the heavenlies there is a regular time, verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6, there's a regular time when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. The scene is the throne of heaven and we see that there is an angelic convocation, an assembly of angels made up of both fallen angels and elect angels. And they all come before the presence of God, and among them is Satan. And the Lord says to Satan in verse 7, From where have you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. See, even in the early days of the history of humanity, Satan was still cruising the earth like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's his normal uh, modus operandi. And so the Lord says, okay, well, if you're, you're down there looking for a victim, someone to attack, have you taken a look at my servant Job? He's got it all together. And so Satan answers him in verse 9 and says, does Job fear God for nothing? See, this is the second issue that comes up in the book of Job, is why do people worship God? Why do people obey God? 
Do they obey God because they're going, they believe they're going to get something good from God? If I obey God, at least He won't punish me. If I obey God, life will be better. If I obey God, He will shower me with blessings. Uh, do people obey God and worship God for what they will get out of it? Or do they worship God simply because He is God and therefore because of who He is, He is worthy of their total and absolute devotion and attention? That is the question that Satan opposes to God. Does Job just serve you because you've given him so much? And back in the first five verses, which we skipped over, we realize that God has blessed Job in many ways. He has a tremendous family. He has seven sons and three daughters. He has incredible possessions. He was arguably the wealthiest man of his day. He was the Bill Gates of his generation. He had uh, more possessions, uh, more financial assets than anyone else. God has rich, had richly blessed him above and beyond anyone else, and yet he did not let his prosperity distract him from worshiping God. In verse 5, we realize how deeply he was concerned about his not only his relationship with God, but the relationship that his children had with God. Annually, they would come together on their birthdays and have feasts. And, it, and we're told in verse 5, so it was when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. He is a concerned parent. He is concerned about the spiritual welfare of his children. As the patriarch in a patriarchal dispensation, he is offering sacrifices for his family. So he clearly has the, his priorities right. He has the, his spiritual life and their spiritual life at the forefront of his thinking. And so now this is going to be challenged. And Satan says, well, Job just worships you because you put a hedge around him. You have protected him. You've uh, provided everything for him. You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased. But Satan says, if you will just reach out your hand and touch all that he has, he will curse you to your face. So the Lord gives Satan permission to take Job through the hurdles. And he's going to take Job through various various tests, but so there's a limitation initially in this first round, and that is that he can't touch his person. In the next uh, seven verses, we learn that on one day, birthday party, his sons and daughters gathered together, and then a messenger came to Job and talks about while they were the children were all gathered together, the um, on this same day, the Sabaeans came in and raided, they killed the servants, they uh, took away all of his uh, cattle, his oxen, his donkeys, and then uh, another servant comes along and says, while the, his sons were, and daughters were having their party, the fi- fire of God fell, uh, burned up the sheep and the serpents, and then the Chaldeans came in, raided the camels, killed the servants, and then um, a great wind, a tornado came up in verse 19, comes across the desert, hits the house where his sons and daughters are uh, partying, and now they're all dead. So in one day, in the space of about an hour and a half or less, he receives four messengers to tell him that he has uh, lost his personal wealth, he has lost his family, he has lost everything that is 
near and dear to him, and we get to see how Job responds. Now, the thing that we have going for us is that we see behind the scenes. Job has no idea that the angels have been meeting in heaven with God. He has no idea that God has suggested to uh, Satan that he can take a look at Job. He has no idea that God has given Satan permission to test him. And so he hears all of these things, and in verse 20 he arises, tears his robe, shaves his head, falls to the ground, and he worships. His response is not to blame God. His response is to glorify God. And he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, God says, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Job is focused on the fact that if we're going to praise God for what he gives to us, then why should we not also praise God when he takes away from us? For ultimately, God is the one who determines both the blessings that we have as well as the judgment. So he passes the first phase of the test, and then chapter 2 opens up with a similar situation. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And we see the same kind of question and answer between the Lord and Satan. The Lord asks, him, asks Satan where he's been, and Satan says he's been cruising the earth looking for uh, someone to take advantage of, and the Lord says, well, have you looked at Job again? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited him against me to destroy him without cause. We're asking the question, what are the ways in which Satan seeks to influence us? And one of the ways in which Satan seeks to influence us is through adverse circumstances. Now, Satan can also do it through prosperity because prosperity is one of those tests that most people fail. But the example in Job is that of adversity and suffering. And Satan is seeking to influence Job through external pressure of adversity to force him into a position where he will reject the grace of God and instead of responding by honoring God, he would respond by cursing God, by blaming God, by reacting in anger to God. Rather than responding on divine viewpoint, we need to ask the question, is Job going to react in autonomy? Is he going to try to solve the pressure independently of God, or is he going to turn in anger to God and uh, hostility toward God? Remember, those are the two uh, twin poles of satanic thinking, autonomy and uh, hostility, anger toward God. So we're going to go through round two, and Satan addresses the Lord and says, well, so far he's done okay, but if I take away his health, then he will curse you. Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give his give for his life. So the Lord says to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, but spare his life. And this time he attacks, Satan attacks through a series of health tests involving 
uh, painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And so we find uh, Job itching terribly. He's outside scraping himself, and he is absolutely miserable, physically miserable, physically loathsome. And his wife, the voice of human viewpoint, comes along and says, just, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Are you going to still say that God loves you? Are you going to still say doctrine works? Look at all this stuff that's happened. You've heard it. The same kinds of things. Are you going to say doctrine works? Look at what God's done to you. Why don't you just curse God and die? But he said, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? And in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, then his three friends show up. And see, this is another arena. We get, we get uh, pressure put on us just from the adverse circumstances of life. But then we get pressure put on us from our friends, advisors, family, from our peer network that uh, try to give us some alternative solution to solving the problem. And that alternative solution can involve any number of different things, but it's a way to solve the problem without doing what Job has done so far, which is just to relax and trust God and refuse to blame God for what is going on. And so the uh, next several chapters in Job all focus on this idea that that uh, his Friends all come along and try to get him to reject God. Eventually he does. He eventually succumbs as time goes by, and he begins to challenge God's integrity. And then God shows up towards the end of the book, and in a series of rhetorical questions, he puts Job in his creaturely place. He begins to ask questions like, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I created these animals and those plants? Where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? And by asking this series of rhetorical questions, God is not answering Job's question of, why am I suffering unjustly? God is telling Job that he is omniscient and omnipotent. And Job needs to trust him because Job doesn't have the facts to judge God. And he puts Job in his place, and Job responds in humility and trusting God. In the midst of all of this, there is a famous statement by Job where he says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. This is the attitude of the believer focused on the provision of God, that we trust God because of what his word says. Our experience is too limited to judge or evaluate to really understand why things are happening the way they're happening. We just don't have enough data. All we can do is trust God and recognize that he does have all the data, that he is a God who has a plan, that he is a God who loves us, and that by succumbing to the pressures of circumstances to turn against God, then we are coming under uh, demonic influence. We are seeking to address the problem on our own uh, resources. Another example in the Old Testament of satanic influence comes in a situation of divine discipline. This takes place in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So turn with me back a few 
books to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we see the discipline of God on Saul. And in this particular situation, we see how the Lord is using Satan and the demons, the evil spirits, to carry out divine discipline on a disobedient Saul. Saul has been chosen by God. He is to be the king of Israel. He, ha- he is a believer. He was a believer. He, is, uh, been, he has been obedient to God, but for the last uh, 20 or so years of his reign, he was out of fellowship. He had succumbed to the whole concept of autonomy, that instead of doing exactly what God said to do, he was going to solve the problem on his own. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, Saul has been in a war against uh, <clears throat> against the Amalekites, and God has authorized him to annihilate all of the Amalekites, man, woman, child, and all of the beasts, part of holy war that was involved in Joshua in taking, taking the land. And this is the last example of legitimate holy war in history. And so Saul attacked the Amalekites. This was a major battle in the ancient world. It freed the ancient world from one of the greatest oppressive forces in the ancient world, that of the Amalekites. But instead of obeying God, Saul had a better idea. He got his eyes on the all of the booty. He got his eyes on the fact that he could uh, take the best of the cattle and he could take the uh, the plunder and it could improve his own position. And so rather than kill everyone and destroy everything, we're told in verse 9 of chapter 15 that Saul and the people spared Agag, the best of his sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. So what we see here is that aspect of autonomy. They're going to operate independently of God, think they know more about how to handle the situation than what God has said to do, and so they are going to come up with their own idea. So the Lord says to Samuel, says Samuel the prophet to Saul, because Saul does not operate on his own, he operates under the authority of God, and he says, sends uh, Samuel to, uh, to Saul to confront him with his sin, which he does. And in a tremendous scene, Samuel comes in and uh, hacks the head off of Agag uh, to carry out the divine commandment to show that that's not in conflict with God's character. But the interpretation of this event is given by Samuel in verse 23, where he says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, that's autonomy, he also has rejected you from being king. Rebellion goes back, uh, rebellion against a legitimate authority goes back to Satan's initial rebellion against God. That is why it is categorized as a sin of witchcraft. Witchcraft is activity in alliance with the demon. So it's the same kind of thing that we see in James chapter 3, that when we think in independence against God's authority, we are thinking the same way 
Satan thinks in the same way the demons think. So for this, the crown is taken from Saul. He will still reign for some years, but his dynasty will not come into existence. And in chapter 16, we are introduced to David, who will replace Saul as king. And in verse 14 of chapter 16, we see the intensification of divine discipline on Saul. See, the involvement of Satan with Job was not divine discipline. That was for the purpose of testing Job positively. But here, this is discipline, chastisement for disobedience. Verse 14, we read, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Incidentally, he can't depart from believers today. The role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was restricted to key leadership personnel in the kingdom of Israel, kings, prophets, uh, those who are involved in the construction of the tabernacle, key leaders in the theocracy of Israel were given the Holy Spirit for the uh, operation of their leadership role. It wasn't for the purpose of their spiritual life at all. It was only for their role as uh, leaders in Israel. The Spirit of the Lord could therefore be taken from them because of disobedience, and that's what happened with Saul. And a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. It's from the Lord because even Satan and the demons have to get divine permission to do anything. We saw that in Job. Satan could not go after Job on his own. He had to have divine permission. This goes back to the sovereignty of God. So this distressing spirit from the Lord troubles him. He is under demonic oppression. This is external. It is not internal. But because of this external operation of this uh, demon, then Saul is deeply troubled. He has, uh, he is depressed. He's overly anxious. He's fearful. It intensifies the sin pattern that he has already chosen uh, to be involved in. So verse 16, they try their, uh, have a solution. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide me a man who can play well, and so on, and they have uh, David come. And we're told then in verse 23 that whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp, play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the spirit would leave him. A lot of interesting things we can talk about there, but the focus of our study this morning is to go through these examples of different ways in which Satan and his demons influence people. Well, let's get out of the Old Testament. Well, one more example in the Old Testament. First Chronicles 21.1. This is with David. David is portrayed in the Scripture as a mature believer, but not a perfect believer, and he too can succumb to demonic influence and satanic influence. First Chronicles 21.1. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. This relates to pride, that for David to go out and take a census of his people and his military in order to see how strong he is, putting the emphasis on what he has in his material and military assets rather than on the power of God. 
And so Satan is behind this. We don't know exactly how, what the mechanics are, but what we do see in Scripture is that there is some way in which uh, demons and Satan are able to insert themselves into physical processes. We have the sons of God back in Genesis chapter 6. You have examples of demon possession. And now we see there are examples where Satan and demons can influence, directly seem to influence people's thinking by putting thoughts, temptations into people's thinking. Now, don't go too far with this until I'm done. People always say, well, can Satan read my thoughts? Well, we really don't know. The Bible never addresses that. But what we do see is there is this intersection that takes place that we cannot ignore. I think some people go too far and they start blaming uh, Satan for every thought that comes into their head and the devil's after them all the time, and that leads to a totally different problem because they've uh, completely misunderstood what's going on here. I just want to point that out, that David is moved. Somehow Satan influences him to operate in arrogance and self-reliance. Now, that's one of the greatest dangers that we can fall into. In fact, in the New Testament in Timothy, Timothy is uh, exhorted or challenged, warned by Paul not to lay hands on a leader too soon or someone who is too young in the faith lest they fall prey to the sin of Satan, and the sin of Satan is arrogance. And it's very easy for us as believers to become self-sufficient. We reach a certain level of biblical understanding, biblical knowledge, and we think we have it made. It's easy for us in Bible-teaching churches because we can look around and we understand the Scriptures and we can see a lot of what is going on in the world around us to think, oh, we've got it made. We've got a pastor who teaches the Word and who keeps us from error, and look at all these other uh, poor, misguided, emotional uh, Christians out there. We have it so good. And God has been grateful to, uh, gracious to us, and he's provided a lot for us as a congregation. But we have to be careful. Uh, every now and then I hear people make statements that sort of uh, vibrate through me and scare me a little bit about how good the Lord's been to us and we're just as such a great congregation and we have to be careful uh, as a congregation. There's a, to one level, it's good to have an esprit de corps and have a, a gratitude for what God has given us and have a great sense of how he's provided for us. But we can't go so far as to start getting uh, prideful and holding ourselves up as some kind of uh, ultimate paradigm of how a church should be. Uh, pride goeth before a fall. And the problem, as Paul points out, is that knowledge, and there he uses the word gnosis, knowledge can puff up, but love makes full. In other words, we don't want to ever get into that point as a congregation where we think that we have arrived. We have a long way to go, and there's a tremendous amount to learn, so we always have to make sure that we keep a humble attitude about how God has blessed us. Uh, David did not do that, and as a result, God brought a tremendous judgment against Israel through a plague. But there was blessing even in that cursing, for when the plague ended and the angel of death stopped, he stopped at the threshing floor of Aruna the uh, 
Jebusite, and it was there that the temple was going to be established. So there was even grace in the judgment. Well, we can go into the New Testament and look at a couple of passages. I just want to skip through them rather briefly, but I want to point them out to you. In Matthew 16:23, Jesus turns to Peter, as Peter has asked him a question related to uh, his, his ministry, he turns to Peter, he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Peter's focus is on his agenda for Jesus, not on God's plan for Jesus. And so the Lord addresses him as if he were Satan, because that's where this kind of thinking originates. And so we see that Peter is influenced by Satan in terms of false doctrine and a false understanding of Christ's ministry. In John chapter 13, verse 2, a passage we looked at earlier, as the Lord celebrated the Passover with his disciples, at the beginning we read during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So in some way, Satan is putting the thought, the temptation to betray Christ into Judas's heart. Judas responds positively. Judas still has volition at this point. He could respond positively or negatively. He could reject the thought. Just because Satan puts a thought in your head doesn't mean you have to act on it. Uh, but obviously there's a, a way in which thoughts may originate from outside of us. This seems to be confirmed in Acts 5, verse 3, when Ananias and Sapphira have lied about their the selling of their land and that they sold it all and gave all the money to the church. Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Now, he could be uh, using this as a term that Satan directly put that thought into his thinking, which is what it seems to suggest, or it could be that it is just the satanic system of pride that is the source of this. But when I address these kinds of things, I want you to understand that people get all caught up in the fact, well, how do I know whether it's from Satan or just my sin nature? Well, you don't, and it doesn't matter. See, it doesn't matter who is attacking you because the solution against the assault is always the same. And the solution is always to apply doctrine and to stand firm in his word. It is not our responsibility to go out and try to figure out what may be going on in the invisible realm in spiritual warfare. One last verse, 1 Timothy 4.1, we're told that the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, which is a general term for the church age, In the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And this happens whenever anybody gets away from the truth of God's word. And we could go on and on for the rest of the morning about the different uh, ministries and teachings and false doctrines that are taking place and characterize uh, so-called Christianity in America in the 21st century, because this has been true, but it's been true throughout the centuries. There have been numerous people who have fallen away from the absolutes 
of God's word and been distracted by false doctrine, which ultimately has its origins from Satan, from the demons, and the angelic conflict. First Corinthians or Second Corinthians eleven thirteen to fifteen says that uh, related to the various false apostles that were appearing even in the early church, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Paul says it's no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Satan's strategies are to distract us. And he doesn't distract us so much with things that are obviously wrong, and obviously in contradiction to Scripture. It is the subtle things. He does it through pressure. He does it through uh, circumstances. He does it through the uh, thinking of our peers and family. He does it through uh, enticing our own sin nature. This is why we have to uh, come back to the principle in Romans 12:2, not to be conformed to this world, not to let our thinking be shaped by the values, the rationales, the thought forms, the agenda of the culture around us, the world system that surrounds us, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's all about thinking. It is the thinking of Christ versus the thinking of Satan. We talk about the fact that you shall know the truth, Jesus said, and the truth will set you free. The truth is ultimately embodied in the person of Christ, but it is more specifically encapsulated in the thinking of Christ. It is thought versus thought. And so we have to understand the different manifestations of the thought systems of the world. So this comes down to the role of the pastor teacher. The role of the pastor teacher is to inoculate the congregation against the influence of demonic thinking in the culture around. He does that through the teaching of the Word of God, but just as God often juxtaposes his truth in against the error of the world systems around them. God is always showing through various ways why he's right and the systems of the world are wrong. Uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel is a classic example. Again and again, God juxtaposes divine viewpoint with human viewpoint so people get the point. That is a way in which I, I try to do this in my teaching. problem with that is I try to teach critical thinking is that as we try to grow and mature and learn to think critically, often you go through a stage where you become critical. You have to avoid that. That's just arrogance. But you see that all the time in people as they try to develop a, a little ability to evaluate things. Suddenly they can become too judgmental. But we have to be inoculated against demon influence, the thinking of the cosmic system. We have to be inoculated against the fads and fancies that come along uh, in every decade to distract the church from its mission. And there are all kinds of fads and things that happen, and we can't focus on all of them, but we can certainly focus on the general principles and on the positive truths of God's Word. We have to recognize the traits of the cosmic system in our own 
culture so that we're able to see how the culture around us has subtly influenced us to think in, in terms of its agenda rather than the Bible's agenda. For every one of us are influenced by the thought structures of the world around us. It's a comfortable uh, system. It's what we've grown up with, but it is not necessarily the Word of God. And it, this is the process of learning to not be conformed to the thinking of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So the focus in this part of our study on angelic conflict is understanding how the world system seeks to influence and distract us from a complete sufficient word of God, the sufficiency of God's grace in total dependence upon him for everything. With our heads bowed, and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you that we can come together to study your word this morning, that it is a sufficient revelation. You've given us everything related to life and godliness. You've left nothing out in your omniscience. You have a perfect plan. You have given us everything we need to know that we may think in terms of your thought, for your thought defines reality. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. God has provided for us a sufficient salvation. He has provided a sufficient solution to the problem of sin. Sin is any act of rebellious, rebelliousness, independence, autonomy from God. It is doing anything that is contrary to the character and the integrity of God. Whenever we sin, and Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that whenever we sin, we violate his character. And the punishment for sin that has was first laid down when Adam disobeyed God is spiritual death. But when we trust in Christ as our Savior, we're made spiritually alive. We are born again. We have new life in Christ. And all this is simply the result of your faith alone in Christ alone, trusting him, realizing that he did everything on the cross. He paid the penalty for sin that we might have eternal life. Father, we pray for each one of us here that are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might not take our spiritual identity uh, for granted, that we might understand that we have been saved for a purpose and our mission here on earth, whatever our um, vocation may be in terms of day-to-day work, our ultimate vocation, our ultimate calling is to serve you and to glorify you in everything we think, say, and do. And we pray that we might be a challenge to complete submission to your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.